and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to head over to our friend's pool to go swimming. We're going to go head over to the local high school and, you know, go be students, I guess, in the 1980s. And, you know, just have hijinks in... Uh, 80s version of LA. But um, regardless of all that, though, we're going to be covering today on um, our episode 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Now, my reason for wanting to cover this movie, around the time that you'll be hearing this, we're going to be uh, almost in the time where we're celebrating, I think it's the 31st anniversary of this movie coming out, or the 40th, actually. Oh my god, I can't do math. But yeah, it's been out for over like 40 years at this point. It came out then, and this is a movie that I have a certain place in my heart for. You know, when I first saw this film, I was a high, I was a high schooler, I think. I was... I probably my teens, honestly, because I remember watching this and Days to Confuse before as well. Um, as you may or may not know, if you've listened to the pod, uh, my sister in particular has a quite a big movie collection. And these were two movies that I think were in that. Fast Times at Ridgemont High was one that I was like, oh, well, I don't know what the hell this movie is, but okay. The, the other thing too, I think, is that so back in the 2000s, there was a little band called Fountains of Wayne. And one of the band members, um, Adam Schlesinger, who has unfortunately since passed away, but he wrote some of the music for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and um, he was one of the band members in this. Like, uh, he seems like a really cool dude. I remember that they had a little song called Stacy's Mom, which is still a bop, and they had this music video, and it's parodying Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I think, like, back in the early days of the internet, I remember being like, oh, Stacy's Mom, like, you know, I like that song, and I looked it up, and then I found something on the internet saying, oh, this is like a reference to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I was like, well, what the hell is that movie? Oh, okay, I guess I'll watch it. And then I found it through my sister who had it. And I just really enjoyed this movie. I mean, I just, I think it is a film that is very much a honest depiction of what it's sort of like to be in high school. I mean, the people who were following, a lot of them are kind of in their 20s at this point. I think everybody was technically above 18 um, playing high school. I, I do think that this film in particular, yeah, it, it captures this reality that's kind of there uh, when it comes to to being in high school and, you know, the things of like, why is it more, <laughs> why is it better to work at this like fast food place than this restaurant or whatever, you know, or like the things that could seem sort of trivial to people who are adults, but to a kid or to a teenager is, is a big deal. Like it's important. Like, you know, in this movie, like, you know, the Brad, you know, he works at the burger joint and he gets fired from it, but then he goes and works at this like fast, uh, seafood restaurant and it's fucking horrible, you know? And so it's a matter of like, he liked one of them and he was okay with it and he gets fired and then he has to go find this other job. So, but something like that is so important to a teenager of like where I'm going to work for my, my job, my little summer job I have or whatever the hell, or my little part-time job. So anyway, I, I just think, and this movie was also the directorial debut of our girl, Amy Heckerling, uh, mostly known for Clueless. But I also think like she got some good bops in this movie, like so much good music in this. And I just, I love the way she did it. It's different than Clueless. I think it's more realistic than Clueless is, obviously, because Clueless is not exactly realistic. But I, I really do enjoy this, and I just think it's a great movie, to be honest. I mean, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but it, it is a film where I look at and I'm just like, this is a good template of what teen movies would end up being, because I don't think that this, similar to how Clueless did... This movie assumes that the audience is gross or nasty or perverted or anything like that. You know, I mean, yes, you see Phoebe Cates's boobs and like, yeah, you see Jennifer Jason Lee's boobs and things like that. You know, there's some nudity in there, but I think it's very frank nudity, if anything. And I just... Uh, or, or just like, you know, the sexual experience that you have, you know, they just kind of show it and it's not glamorized. It's not necessarily uh, this kind of pumped up for teen movies to follow 
for better or worse, <laughs> obviously. This also predates a little bit of like John Hughes movies. Do you know this isn't a John Hughes movie? I just think this is a lot more realistic and I like it more. But anyway, <laughs> we went over all that already. But as we normally do on the show, we're going to go over some figures of the movie, talk about the production history of the movie, and a little bit about that. And then we'll also move on to a plot breakdown, um, character breakdown, things like that. But without further ado, let's move on to those figures. So Fast Times at Ridgemont High was released August 13th of 1982 and was directed by Amy Heckerling, written by Cameron Crowe, and produced by Irving Azoff and Art Linson. We're looking at an estimated budget of $4.5 million and a gross U.S. and Canada box office of $27,092,880 and then a gross worldwide of about the same, pretty much. This movie didn't really go international, I don't think. The Rotten Tomato score, we're looking at a 78% on the tomato meter and an 80% audience score. We're looking at a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb and a letterbox score of 3.5 out of 5. For our cast of characters, we have Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli, a stoner teenager who is an expert surfer, Jennifer Jason Lee as Stacey Hamilton, a 15-year-old freshman who works at Perry's Pizza, Judge Reinhold as Brad Hamilton, the older brother of Stacey, Robert Romanus as Mike Damone, a smooth-talking teenager who takes bets and scalps concert tickets, Brian Backer as Mark Rat Ratner, Mike's best friend, who works as an usher at the movie theater in Ridgemont Mall. Phoebe Cates as Linda Barrett, the best friend of Stacy and co-worker at Perry's Pizza. Ray Walston as Mr. Han, the history teacher at Ridgemont High. Scott Thompson as Arnold, a friend of Brad's. Vincent Chivelli as Mr. Vargas, the high school science teacher uh, amanda wiss as lisa brad's girlfriend dw brown as ron johnson a 26 year old stereo salesman forrest whitaker as charles jefferson a star football player at ridgemont high kelly maroney as cindy one of the cheerleaders tom nolan as dennis taylor the manager of all american burger blair ashley as pat bernardo eric stoltz as jeff's stoner bud uh, anthony edwards as another of jeff's stoner buds stanley davis jr as jefferson's brother the little brother of forrest whitaker james russo as the mini mart robber at the end james Bershad as Greg, Nicholas Cage, uh, who is credited as Nicholas Coppola as one of Brad's friends, uh, and also Reginald H. Farmer as the vice principal of Ridgemont High. And then we have minor appearances from people like Pamela Springsteen as Dina Phillips, uh, Lana Clarkson uh, as Mrs. Vargas, the wife of Mr. Vargas, um, and also Taylor Negron, who is the pizza delivery person from the Pizza Guy restaurant. Some critical response quotes about about Fast Times at Ridgemont High are as follows. We have Kevin Carr from 7M Pictures who states, I'll take something like The Breakfast Club or many of John Hughes' films over Crow's characters any day. We then have Richard Corliss from Time Magazine who states, Director Amy Heckerling has failed to provide the raunch or poignancy that would interest young moviegoers, all of whom have seen American Graffiti and its 467 imitators. Ridgemont High... A nice place to visit, but who would want to transfer there? And then we have Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times, who states, How could they do this to Jennifer Jason Lee? How could they put such a fresh and cheerful person into such a scuzz pit of a movie? So before we go into any kind of a plot summary or breakdown of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, I wanted to go over some, you know, baseline production history, stuff like that to kind of give some context of what was going on. Now, we need to talk a little bit about a gentleman by the name of Cameron Crowe. Now, Cameron Crowe is a guy who was born in Palm Springs. He came up in Southern California like this and pretty much what ended up happening was he was raised by a mom who was a psychology professor and a dad who originally was from Kentucky, who was a real estate agent. So like pretty much he was brought up in a little bit of a weird household a little bit. And he started writing uh, for his school newspaper. And by the age of 13, he was contributing music reviews for an underground publication called the San Diego door. Um, he then started corresponding with a musical journalist uh, by the name 
name of Alester Bangs, who had left the door to become editor of the national rock uh, magazine called Cream. And so he started like submitting articles to Cream as well as Circus. And Cameron, he graduated from San- uh, University of San Diego High School uh, at 15. And on a trip to Los Angeles, he actually met uh, Ben Fong Torres, who was an editor at Rolling Stone, who hired him to write for the magazine. He also joined the Rolling Stone staff as a contributing editor and became associate editor. And during this time, he interviewed Bob Dylan, David Bowie, Neil Young, Eric Clapton, The Eagles, Steely Dan, Led Zeppelin, members of them. And he became like the pretty much youngest ever contributor to this particular publication. Now, if this sounds familiar to you at all, this is because that is actually the literal genesis and inspiration for the movie Almost Famous from 2000. And so literally it follows Cameron Crowe and it's like a pretty much like a adaptation of what actually happened with him during this time. But in regards to uh, Fast Times at Regimont High, so when Rolling Stone moved its offices from California to New York in 77, Crowe decided to stay in California, and he felt the excitement of his career uh, was beginning to wane. So he tried acting a little bit, but he went back to writing, and he decided to turn his attention to writing a book. He was still freelancing for Rolling Stone over off and on, but he decided to put his efforts into writing a book. Uh, At the age of 22, he came up with the idea to pose undercover as a high school student and write about his experiences. So the publisher, Simon & Schuster, gave him a contract, and he moved back in with his parents, and he enrolled as Dave Cameron at Claremont High School in San Diego. Uh, Reliving the senior year he had never really had, he made friends and began to fit in, and though he initially planned um, to include him himself into the book, he actually realized that it would jeopardize his whole ability to capture the essence of the high school experience. And so this book that he ended up creating, which was a year in the life of a high school student, was called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, A True Story. And this came out in 1981. So Crow focused on six main characters, a tough guy, a nerd, a surfer dude, a sexual sophisticate, and a middle class brother and sister. And he chronicled their activities in typical teenage settings so at school at the beach or at the mall um which many of them held after school jobs at and he concentrated on details of their lives that probed into like the heart of adolescence so this included scenes about like homecoming and graduation as well as social cliques they were involved in and also sexual encounters and before the book was released uh, fast times at Ridgemont high was optioned for a film and so that's what we have today so the movie version lacked a specific plot which again we'll go over um and then also didn't have any uh, major name stars uh, the studio didn't put really any marketing effort behind it, and we'll talk about that. But it did become a hit, and we'll also talk about that as well. Yeah, I mean, pretty much like Cameron Crowe, he wrote this book, and it became like uh, kind of popular-ish. You uh, people were interested, and he got a movie from it. Um, now, funny enough, uh, they ended up going with Amy Heckerling to direct this movie, who obviously would go on to direct Clueless. She would go on to, um, you know, just like have a really cool career. Um, And this was definitely a big part of that because it was her feature film debut uh, with directing. But uh, they also kind of wanted to get uh, a young man by uh, the name of David Lynch, uh, because at this time, he had already done Eraserhead, and he had also done The Alpha Man by this point. And so they were interested in trying to get him. They gave him the script, and he read it, and he was like, this isn't really my style, but, you know, wish you the best. But then they ended up finding Amy Heckerling, who had just come out of uh, NYU. Um, She was a New Yorker through and through, and so she did, like, a short that like really blew people away and they were like all right we got to get her and they ended up getting her so they had this movie greenlit and a big part of this was the fact that they wanted to get unknown people for this movie and pretty much they did they had their main characters that we have uh we have jess piccoli stacy hamilton brad hamilton 
uh, Mike Damone and Mark Ratner. And those are like kind of our main core people, right? So with Jeff Sapicoli, they did look at some people like Eric Stoltz, who's in this movie. And also, <laughs> they also had Anthony Edwards as well. They all uh, auditioned for this role and they ended up getting cast as Spicoli's friends. But they found Sean Penn. I mean, really, he had only done like maybe two things before this. Um, he was from Southern California originally. And he came in and just blew everyone away. Um, and got very method into this role as well. Um, and they were like, oh my God, he's like perfect for this. And so, um, cause they had some good people like, you know, read for Spicoli, but Sean just had an essence that, you know, nobody could really match. Um, so that's how they got Spicoli. Jennifer Jason Lee came in and I think they had seen people like Ali Sheedy for this role, who would then go on to be, um, in part of the Brat Pack for John Hughes films of the time. And also Meg Tilly, sister of Jennifer Tilly, uh, who would have her own, um, career in like, uh, the Psycho sequels and, uh, Body Snatchers from the early nineties and, and all of that. And just being, you know, related to Jennifer Tilly, of course. But anyway, Jennifer Jason Lee came in and they really didn't want anybody else but her. Amy was really set on her and really liked her. It was interesting, too, because, you know, maybe people knew if you were in the industry, but actually Jennifer Jason Lee is the daughter of Vic Morrow, who is a gentleman who had a prolific television career and is also kind of infamously known as one of the people who got killed on the set of Twilight Zone, the movie, in a whole accident that really kind of uh, shook up the film industry at that time. And it wasn't long after that this movie was released that this actually happened. Um, so probably in the middle, like, if anything, probably like they shot this before that all happened as well. So I can only imagine what went on with that. But yeah, but they, they liked her. She was, I think, probably similarly aged to Phoebe Cates, who I think was 18 or 19 at the time. And they both just had qualities of like being young, uh, even though they both were of age technically. But yeah, they, they didn't want anybody else but her. They, they had other people who read, but Jennifer Jason Lee really, um, you know, kind of got her got her start with this uh really and and has gone on to have a really cool career did Reinhold actually so brad they were really struggling to find brad actually uh so they really couldn't find anybody to play him and it just so happened that uh, amy heckerling was renting an apartment when she was doing fast times or when she was about to start this movie and she had an assistant at the time named carrie who was dating a person by the name of judge reinhold and he was actually her upstairs neighbor funny enough and so like that's pretty much because he's from Delaware. Um, he then ended up, I guess, moving out to L.A., of course. He moves out to be an actor. He did little things here and there uh, in regards to... He was in, like, Stripes from 1981. Um, he was in, like, an episode of The Wonder Woman show. But, yeah, I mean, like, he was able to get this role. And they actually have a story where, like, uh, Amy really did want him because... It was, it was interesting. She thought he was just older, or he came off as older, right? Because she saw herself as, like, a grown-up making this movie. Her friend, you know, the her assistant, you know, who's doing casting, um, she's also a grown-up doing this movie. And she also thought of Judge as, like, oh, well, he's, like, this grown-up. Uh, but when they started seeing the talent that was coming in and that they were actually similarly aged to to Judge Reinhold, um, they actually really wanted to get with him. So they actually did, uh, or they wanted him for the role. So they were able to actually kind of finagle it where they brought in Art Linson, who was one of the producers of this movie, um, to watch his audition because he also wanted to go in for it too, but they didn't want them to think it was like a thing of, uh, it's not nepotism, but it's like favoritism. This is a friend of mine. I don't sort of put them in a movie, but they had him come in and literally like judge Reinhold had to pretend like he didn't know Amy Heckerling. He didn't know her, his girlfriend at the time. and just come in and do the reading and art actually really liked him. And, uh, then they told him after the fact, like, Hey, you know what? That's actually my boyfriend. It's like a friend of ours. Uh, but they still really liked him and, and art still really liked him. So he was able to get the role. He also has said that, um, judge Reinhold has said, I thought my career would really take off after that role and later instead sean penn's uh, career took off which it definitely did and then also mark ratner so they were really looking for him too um you know they 
really wanted to cast actually a unknown young man by the name of Nicholas Coppola, who is now gone on to become Nick Cage. But, uh, you know, at the time he was just some unknown guy. Uh, they really liked him for the role of, uh, Mark. They, they really wanted him to do it. They thought he could do it. He was actually 17 at the time, so they couldn't actually get him, uh, to be able to work him enough. So yeah, but, uh, they did have him in the movie. He is, is literally one of his first roles ever. Um, so that's kind of cool, but, uh, yeah, but what ended up happening was that Amy went to New York and ended up finding Brian Backer from, uh, actually the theater. He had, uh, actually won the Tony the year before for a show called the floating light bulb, um, where he played, um, a young Woody Allen pretty much. Uh, and he again got accolades for that. And, you know, Amy was just like, oh, he was really good. So we should bring him in for this role, perhaps. And that's also where they found Phoebe Cates as well. Um, and she would then go on to just be, of course, Phoebe Cates and being Gremlins and other movies like that. But, you know, it's so cool how this kind of all worked. And then, yeah, like, you know, again, they found Phoebe Cates and Brian Backer in New York. Ray Walston, who was brought in, they kind of wanted a different type of person for this role. Because uh, in the book, he was described as a little bit different um, than what we ended up getting with Ray Walston, but Ray Walston was such a good actor, really. You know, he had been, he had uh, earned a Tony as well, being in Damn Yankees. He was known as being my favorite Martian, the guy from that show, which is actually how A.B. Heckerling knew who he was. But they brought him in and he just like knocked it out of the park, man. Like, you know, and and he is like the only adult in this movie that we really are following at all. So I think that's really interesting as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I also love Ray Walston. I think he's a great actor. <laughs> yeah, and then just, like, having people like Scott Thompson. Um, so, again, that's Arnold. Uh, they brought him in to read for some parts, and they ended up liking him for some things. Oh, and then also Forrest Whitaker, uh, too. So, uh, Forrest Whitaker, he also, I think, came from New York because he had been working up there. And they didn't really think like he could do this role, which really his role is Charles Jefferson. He's a star football player. Um, he doesn't really have any lines, but because uh, his like literally one line he has is like, don't fuck with it. And Amy Heckerling was like, you know, we can't just have him just say that. Like, you know, they asked like, you know, when he came in, like, oh, do you have a monologue or something you can do? He ended up pulling this monologue out from a show he did called Streamers. And they ended up being like, oh, wow, he's like really good. And he could work with this. And even he was like, you know, um, they didn't think that he could do it because he was just so nice. He was so sweet. He wasn't intimidating. Um, and he replied of like, well, I'm an actor. And so he was able to come in and, and do the job. And a funny little story Amy Heckerling has is that um, he, she, he came in to do uh, the reading. He left the audition and everything like that. And I think he knew he did good and he got it. And he, she remembers seeing him skip out to his car, which is like really cute because and she thought it was really cute. And I think that kind of just sealed the deal with him, too, of like, oh, wow, like, yeah, this is this is a uh, this is the guy we need for sure. Um, and then just having some other random ass people. So like, you know, Amanda Wiss, who at this time, um, had really only done, I don't even know what really she had done before. She'd done like little things here and there. And this was one of her first jobs really. Um, but she would then end up being in the nightmare on Elm street as the first person to die in that series. Um, you know, being Tina and everything. Kelly Maroney, who had been on a soap at that time, who was playing kind of this bad teenage girl type thing, you know, um, she had been doing that, but then she kind of made a name for herself. This is her first film, really. And then she would go on to be in, like, Night of the Comet, Chopping Mall, in all the horror movies. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, she kind of made herself a little niche in there. But, uh, yeah, this is, like, her first movie role. And then also, uh, alongside her, funny enough, is uh, our girl, the Angela Baker from the other sequels of Sleepaway Camp, Pamela Springsteen. She plays um, Dina, who is uh, the dark-haired uh, cheerleader juxtaposed to Kelly Baroni's blonde one. But yeah, so it's like random people, just so weird. There are so many different folks that, you know, came in to do this and, you know, they filmed, I'm sure in like 1981 around that time. Um, cause this didn't come out to 1982. 
they shot all around uh, LA, of course. So this is a lot of it's in the Valley area. Um, so a lot of the houses and stuff. The school uh, in particular is, um, I think, Van Nuys High School, which uh, it is this high school. It is also uh, the high school from Wonder Years. They used it for there. And it's also the titular Rock and Roll High School uh, used in that movie, because uh, that is that one. And then the mall, uh, it's actually two different malls. Uh, so the exteriors, I believe, are of Santa Monica, some mall in Santa Monica, which was in kind of like a, a sketchy area a little bit, apparently. Uh, I was listening to the commentary on this. Um, I have a double feature of this movie and Days to Confuse. So I was listening to it and they said that uh, there was like, they remember going to the this mall one time and there was somebody who had like jumped off of the mall and they like covered his body with a cloth and they were like, oh God, what happened here? Uh, but so the exteriors are that, place but the interiors are actually the sherman oaks galleria which is still open to this day they were afraid that it actually was in the middle of going to be closing but i think it's still open this is the mall from this film but it also is the mall in uh i just talked about chopping mall it is the mall from um back to the future part two it is the mall from um obviously this movie um and night of the comet as well uh so yeah, it is all over. Um, it's a very famous mall, obviously. It, it is not the Clueless Mall. I thought for some reason it was the Clueless Mall. And it's also, weirdly enough, not the Valley Girl Mall. I thought it was the Valley Girl Mall too, but it's not. But yeah, so they just shot this all around and all this, and they ended up getting the movie together. And now they did have a little bit of issue with the film because... I think the big thing about this film was that they wanted this to be very honest. They didn't want it to be like saccharine and sappy or whatever, really. They tried to not have that. So they had some issues with like some music that they had. They really wanted a different type of music. Uh, but the music that they get, you know, they made it work. But uh, a big thing also was like some of the cuts of this movie. So one of the big ones that is kind of known is the fact that in the scene where Damone and Stacy have sex in the pool house, the little pool shed. They show her bare ass body, right? Her bare naked ass body. But uh, they actually did shoot where Damone gets like naked. You see his dick and everything. And literally they said to Amy Heckerling, they were like, you know, if you put that into the film and she shot it that way, because if you're going to shoot Jennifer Jason Lee naked, might as well shoot Robert Romulus naked. He was down to do it. Uh, and they the censors told her, like, if you put that in there, it'll be an X rating. And she was like, this is crazy. Like, you could literally show almost everything of Jennifer Jason Lee, right? But you can't show penis. Like, it makes no sense. And again, I also fall in that camp, too, because I'm literally like, we show all of this female nudity, which is fine and whatever if you're down to do it. Again, sometimes it can be very exploitative. But I mean, hey, if that's what you do for your art, whatever, eh, you know, people can have their dis disagreements about it or have their thoughts on it. But you can't have a guy hanged on. Like, I don't understand that. It just doesn't, without it being pornographic, you know? Because I don't think that scene is even at all pornographic. And it wouldn't have been, but... I don't know, man. It's crazy. There was a little bit issues here and there with that, you know, kind of thing. And then the other issue for this movie was the fact that Universal did not have really a whole lot of... Um, I talked about it earlier, but it, they didn't have faith in this movie. They thought it was just who's who's going to come out and see a movie where these kids are just acting all bad and they're doing all these like crazy things and da 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 da. da. Um, so much so that they literally like only released it limited. It. Uh, they limited it so it was only showing in 498 theaters. They literally showed it, I think, on the West Coast. They literally didn't even show it on the East Coast. Because people thought, these the studio thought, like, who's going to want to watch this movie that is so Californian? It's so specific to the Los Angeles area. Like, who, who's going to watch this? Like, nobody's going to watch this unless they're already in L.A., right? Like, so... It was it was a little tough, you know, and, and people have remarked on it too, you know, um, like anybody who was involved in the movie uh, definitely understood that. Oh, also a little fun thing: the guy who did the casting for this movie, I think I mentioned it before in my other episode uh, about Days of Confused. Don Phillips cast this movie, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He would then go on to cast Days of Confused, which is also kind of fun. But yeah, so this movie, I think it was being compared to something like 
for example, um, American Graffiti, right? And don't get me wrong, I mean, American Graffiti is fine. It's a perfectly good movie, but it's a different kind of movie. And you can't really, you can compare it to a point because it's in a similar vein of like it's a teen movie, but they're doing two different things. Okay. So, like, yeah, there just, there wasn't a whole lot of faith behind this movie. And come to find out with that, though, I mean, they kind of got it wrong because <laughs> this movie ended up becoming a hit, you know, and this. Uh, it ended up kind of being that like sleeper hit, if you will. They, people kind of got this word of mouth of like, you know, you need to check this movie out, you know, and that's like so cool though. And um, it has gone on to be this kind of legacy of a film, you know what I mean? Like it's super, super big. And so it's gone on to now it's in like the Library of Congress, you know, as being like uh, culturally significant. Um, you know, because it is a very much a, a staple within the teen movie genre, you know, um, I think it is personally to me, this is my own opinion, but like, you know, this movie, I think really showed like that this is how a teen movie can be done. And it's still fairly respectful. You know what I mean? Um, it's still pretty good. And it's very honest you know and and i kind of really can get behind that and i think it then changed the landscape a little bit funny enough because then clueless would end up doing that you know years later but i think this kind of showed like here's this kind of movie that you can make and i think folks were trying to replicate that after the fact um because again I, I think it ended up becoming a a big a big thing the film then inspired a short-lived a a TV series that also had uh, Ray Walston and Vincent um, Chevelli in it, who plays Mr. Vargas, the uh, science teacher. But also, like, for example, Patrick Dempsey was on there and he played Mike Damone, but he wasn't, again, that show was on very long. <laughs> and this movie has just gone on to have a legacy all its own, you know, and and that's so super cool. And so, but yeah, it's, it's gone on to have this kind of, yeah, it's gone on to really be able to reference and be referenced, um, all over the place which is like so cool and again it goes down as one of these like really great teen films and it, it has gone on to yeah just do that and it's so cool to me um that they have that and it's referenced you know in it's referenced in like you know title as well like um anything that is you know used for that it was referenced in like luke who's talking which was also um amy hackerling as well obviously clueless um Actually, clueless. Funny enough, there is there's a scene of that movie where Cher's report card has her name is uh, last name is Hamilton, but her last name is Horowitz. That was probably a little fun thing, but I I just think that there is definitely this. I don't know. There is this kind of like there is a certain DNA that this movie has um, that I would say really you know it has been shown in other teen films and it, it does have this just kind of through line there um which i i think is really nice and you know it's i mean obviously it's like made fun of in like not another teen movie and all of that but again i just think that it's like so fun and you can see all of these different references to the movie as well um and that just shows that it does have the staying power, which is really cool. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit about, like, the production of this movie, the legacy it's had, all of that kind of stuff. But without further ado, let's move into a plot breakdown as best we can on Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Now, even though with this particular movie with a plot, uh, there is a narrative plot, I guess. But I want to kind of uh, shake this up a little bit. And I want to talk about kind of these different stories that are are uh, talked about throughout the movie um, of these different main characters we have. Um, so we'll start with, so we have our, our central main characters. So we have Brad and Stacey Hamilton, who are played by Judge Reinhold and Jennifer Jason Lee, respectively. Um, we then have Mike Damone, played by Robert Romulus. And then we also have Jeff Spicoli, played by Sean Penn, as well. And then we also have Mike Ratner in there, too, who is played by Brian Backer. Um, so those are kind of like our five like main people, really. Um, so I'm going to go through kind of each one of their stories. And again, um, this isn't all going to be like linear in that way. Because um, again, the whole point of this 
movie uh, in the town of Ridgemont is that all these different stories are taking place over the course of a year. Um, So we start in the beginning of the year, I would say, uh, when people are coming back to school. Um, and then we end um, at the end of the year when they're at their like little like end of the year dance and stuff. So we'll start with Brad Hamilton. So Brad is the he is the older brother of Stacy Hamilton, and so he's a popular senior at Ridgemont High School. So he is about to be a senior at this point. He's going into senior year, and uh, of course Ridgemont High is in the San Fernando Valley, and he's looking forward to his final year at school. Um, so right now uh, in this prime of his life he has a job at all-american burger he has his 1960 buick lesabre is like almost paid off for and he actually plans to break up with his uh girlfriend lisa played by amanda wiss and so he can completely be eligible during his senior year and so we find that brad his character throughout is really just he's this older brother to stacy which i think is really nice and and good um he's is kind of that older brother type uh but also you see his own kind of internal struggle of you know he's able to kind of be like what I want to be a new person in my senior year. I want to not be tied down with my girlfriend um and I want to be able to feel like I have this you know, freedom, I guess. So yeah, though, his perfect life, though, uh, quote unquote, is threatened after an exchange with an obnoxious customer uh, results in his firing from All American Burger. So this is a scene where you find that he is already kind of like, he's been working there for a minute and he has a pretty good uh, understanding of his job. He actually helps get his friend Arnold, uh, played by Scott um, Thompson in this movie. He gets a a job there. (laughs) And actually, so like that scene is like literally um, he's covering for Arnold when he goes to the bathroom he's out of the register some guy comes up to him and is all like you know this wasn't the best um, breakfast i've had and it says it'd be 100 100 guaranteed i want my money back and he's just like oh well i don't you know there's like a formula to fill out and all this and he gets like berated by this customer and he pretty much tells him like you know mister if you don't shut up i'm gonna kick 100 of your ass you know and uh then he gets fired by his his boss so that happens and then also like when brad tries to tell lisa how much he needs her because again he was planning on breaking up with her but uh she in turn wants to break up with him and she decides to do that which is so funny because then he's like shocked by it and he's just like oh you know but then he was gonna do the same exact thing he just she just beat him to the punch really because he's in a more vulnerable state he then gets a job over at uh captain hook's uh fish and chips but he quits in humiliation when a beautiful uh older woman uh laughs at him wearing a pirate costume while um you know making a food delivery uh who's played by nancy wilson uh the lady in the car um who's actually uh at the time was cameron crow's wife so it's Brad's story. And he, he he does come back a little bit, but he that kind of is like his part of the story, really. Like his big part in this movie is to be that kind of like gentleman who is like trying to reinvent himself for his senior year and he wants to be something different a little bit. Um, he's popular, people like him, but like, you know, he almost reminds me of like he's being <laughs> It's obviously referenced, but like he's kind of like the not as douchey as a Mike Dexter from Can't Hardly Wait, but there's like glimmers of him in that, you know, from like, I want to break up with our girlfriends and da 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 da, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I just thought that was kind of funny, but yeah. But and then Brad comes back in. We'll talk about that with Stacey's um, arc as well through this movie. Yeah. Anyway, but that's Brad's arc. And then we'll talk also about all these people at the end of the movie as well um, and kind of where they end up. But let's move back on to Stacy, though. So we'll move on to Stacy. So she is like the 15-year-old sister of Brad. And so she is a freshman. She's also a virgin, um, which is made a big deal of a little bit. Um, she works at Perry's Pizza at um, the Richmond Mall alongside her outspoken older friend, Linda Barrett, who is played by Phoebe Gates. So, like, for example, uh, you, you see her. You see her at her job. Uh, she ends up, like getting this guy who is interested in her this 26 year old stereo salesman who's named ron johnson she lies about her age says she's 19 
and she ends up going out with him after her um she goes to sleep quote unquote she gets picked up by this guy and they go out um to i think what's called the point or something or it's like a kind of abandoned uh like baseball field apparently and she actually loses her virginity to him in this scene in particular i mean like you see like like you see like her breasts you know in the scene and you just see like how you know she is uh, losing her virginity to this pretty much stranger, which again is a little weird because she's literally 15 in the piece and he's like literally 11 years older than her, but he doesn't know that. But, uh, you know, she just kind of wants to get it out of the way because she sees like her older friend, Linda. Um, she sees her and is like, you know, well, maybe I need to do something about this. We also have our scene, too, of like, you know, she's kind of curious throughout the whole movie, really. You know, she is the youngest um one uh of everybody and and you know she has these things of like she wonders about linda and her guy but um she's very curious about everything and and she's curious about sex and you know what do you do like you know do you always finish with like do you always finish with doug or do you always orgasm with him and you know that kind of thing and and she's just like because she's kind of inexperienced i guess in that way um we also have the iconic scene uh where Stacy and Linda, they're talking at, at lunch, talking about, you know, like, although she's talked about how she's a virgin and there might be variables that, you know, she may not be good at, like giving blowjobs. And Linda's just like, oh, it's just so easy. And she, like, teaches her how to, like, fillet a carrot, uh, which, again, is an iconic scene. I think I talked about it on my first episode with Jawbreaker, but, like, that scene in particular, like, is referenced and homaged a little bit in the big stick scene in Jawbreaker, which I thought was really funny. But, yeah, 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 I love that. Anyway, but, like, yeah, so she loses her virginity to this guy in a dugout, and then he, like, sends her flowers. She's all like, oh, no, like, can't do this. Ugh gross anyway so like you know you see that as stacy goes on she ends up like so one of the big things with her is that she ends up losing her virginity to the sky and then she is pursued by uh mark ratner uh rat played by Brian Backer. He's a usher at the local movie theater at the mall. And he is like really in love with her because like he sees her from across the mall and is just like in love with her. And he like gives her her phone, his phone number and they end up going out on a little date, like to a German restaurant. Uh, They have a whole thing where like um, rat leaves his like wallet at home and he has Damone come out and give it to him. um, So he can like pay for the date and everything like that. And, you know, uh, a little aside about, you know rat i feel like he's somebody who's very much just like he's a a character where he is just so coming into his own you know he's he sees damone as somebody who i think is like a little bit more experienced with this stuff him and stacy i think have a really yeah they're kind of mirror images just different genders really you know different sexes and and so like I, I kind of like that because they are just so innocent with one another. Um, and, you know, like, she, like, invites him into a house and, like, they make out a little bit, but then he can't really go through with it. And she's just like, you know, she tells Linda, she's like, you know, I don't think he's not into me, all that. But then he she turns her sights to Mike Damone. Um, which we'll talk about a little bit as well. But yeah, Stacy, I think, is just, like, a very innocent type person, and she is somebody who... I think just is only so experienced, but wants to get experience with the world and life and all this. And she um, gets a little bit in and over her head, but she ends up having a, a, I think a positive experience, if anything, um, from kind of the issues that she's had. Uh, but put a pin in Stacy for just a minute. Uh, but we're going to move on to Mike Damone because she also comes back into the story with him. So Mike Damone, he's like a smooth talker who he earns money taking sports bets and scalping concert tickets. Um, he fancies himself like a worldly ladies man and his shy but amitable um, friend, um, Mark Ratner. He works as an usher, like I was talking about. And then um, Damone, as Mark goes on, you know, uh, he like tells him about his like five secrets for picking up girls. He uh, tells him to go, you know, take her out on a date and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but again, Mark gets nervous about it all. And she mistakenly, like I said, um, Stacy mistakenly thinks that Mark is not interested in her. And so 
you know, Linda tells her like, oh, move on and find another boy. And so then Damone, like, for example, so like we also have the scene as well. So it comes after this. But before this, we have a scene where like um, Stacy and Linda are together at the pool uh, in her ba- in um, Stacy's backyard. And Damone and Ma- uh, Mark just like come over and they get in the pool without it at all. And we have that scene. It's really the most iconic scene of this movie in general is um, judge Reinhold is like uh, coming in from work. He just got, he got fired and he's at um, this other uh, restaurant, this fast food restaurant. It's like a seafood restaurant and he hates it. And he's like, not, Oh my God, he's hating it. So like he goes in, um, he sees these uh, guys at the pool and he like goes back into the house. And so he, he fantasizes about Linda. Cause he's always fantasized about her, I guess, which is a little kind of odd just because like, it's a younger friend of uh, his sisters. So, you know, whatever, towing the line a little bit, but anyway, but with this, like we have that scene where judge Reinhold, uh, where we have uh, Brad, he uh, goes in the house and he uh, locks, well, he thinks, I guess, puts himself in the bathroom and he is uh, pleasuring himself uh, as he fantasizes about Linda um, coming out of the pool all wet and takes off her like um, bikini top and all of that. And we see Phoebe Kate's perfect boobs. Um, and so that whole scene, of course, is like so iconic and is like kind of the masturbatory dream for young boys. And girls, perhaps. We here at the Cult Cinema Circle podcast do not judge. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you have all of this. And that whole scene is like so hilarious. and has been referenced plenty of times and, and all that. Uh, but even after that, so like Damone comes to the house again because Stacy has kind of set her sights on Damone as well. And so like Stacy becomes interested in him. Um, and that leads her to like invite him to go swimming. Um, and they end up going into the pool house um, to have sex. Uh, funny enough, so like, as I said earlier, Damone fancies himself as like a um, like a ladies man. He's like so, and, and I think that's even how some people see him or like um, they see him as this guy or they see him as like this one person. And even Mark, I think, sees him as like a, a, somebody who's like has more, so much experience, right? But then it's funny because like Stacy comes on to him and they end up having sex, but he's like a minute man. Like he doesn't even last that long. Um, and he ends up like, you know, uh, having sex with her he ejaculates inside of her and then well what had happened was stacy then because what happens is that after that scene you know he ends up leaving and like i said before like you know brad is all you know he's fantasizing about linda (laughs) but he's like he's in a bad space like he hates his job at this um at this place and like all of this right but then damone in a weird way Maybe it's because, I don't know, maybe it's because, like, I don't even know why, really. I don't even know why, really. But he um, becomes, like, withdrawn with Stacy, um, and she's still into him, but then she realizes, like, oh, I guess he's not into me. Kind of a hit it and quit it type of thing, which, again, I don't really know. Maybe that's just how young boys are. I have never been a uh, young heterosexual boy, so I don't really completely know, but whatever. Anyway, so, like, Damone, he's, like, you know, just living his life, doing his thing. He's, like, hitting on this girl um, on, like, the bleachers outside on the track field, and Stacy comes up to him and has to tell him something. So, Stacey Stacy informs him that um, she got pregnant and, you know, he tries to tell her like, well, how do you know it's mine? And she's just like, I haven't really been with anybody else but you, which is true. I mean, like she was with the one guy, but like whenever, but then like, yeah, it was probably to moans like, you know. He tells her, though, that she wanted the sex more than he did, which she denies. And I completely deny that, too, because, like, uh, yes, Stacy, no, you did not want it as much as he did. Like, he also wanted it, too. Like, it was an equal street. You know, I don't think it's like she wanted it more. It's like, no, you did, too. Like, don't lie. She asks him because he's talking about, like, well, we need to do something about it. Da, 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 da. She asks him to like cover half of the cost of the abortion, which would be 70. It's $150. So she's like, Hey, can you cut 75? You know, that's your cut of what you have to pay. He's like, okay, yeah, I can do it. And like provide her a ride to the clinic. He agrees to do this. However, though, because we then see the scene and I guess this is supposed to make you feel for him, which Damone, I mean, I do 
at some point feel for him a bit because he's really just trying to like he's really just trying to like live in the world he's not really able to make up his half he's like trying to like call in like some debts that he has of like he even has like the scene of like him in his bedroom saying people who owe money to me and then my expenses you know so he's was like abortion and then like rod stewart you know but like he's trying to call up being like hey like i need this money from you da, da, da. he's trying to make it but he ends up not being able to get that money and so he pretty much like ditches her on the day of her appointment you know so like she's waiting outside for him um to come and pick her up to take her to the abortion and he ends up not doing it kind of shitty but again you see why that was because he doesn't have a, a ton of extra money and he wasn't planning on this to happen so you know he wasn't able to bring that up um so she uh hears brad leaving the house and he's she's just like hey brad like wait 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 so she lies and tells Brad that, like, hey, you know, I'm going to go meet my friends at this bowling alley. So, like, go drop me off here if you can. And so she gets out. She acts as if she's going into the bowling alley, but she ends up going across the street to the free clinic. Brad does see him, her there, though. And so you see that. So you have that. Obviously, you don't see anything of the actual abortion happening. Um, but you see that Stacy's leaving and Brad is actually there to come and get her. So Brad waits for Stacy and he confronts her about the abortion and Stacy says, you know, Hey, don't tell our parents about this. He's cool with that. Um, he doesn't divulge. She doesn't divulge who got her pregnant or anything like that, um, to Brad or anything. Um, and I, I like this scene because it's just like the brother and sister of it all. I mean, as you know, I have an older sister, um, if you listen to the show. So, you know, I just think like, you know, yeah, this is something where like, yeah, you definitely have that kind of a thing of like, Hey, like, you know, maybe don't tell our parents about this. Like, you know, there are things that only me and you know about because, you know, our parents don't need to know all these other things. Right. So that, that's kind of fair. And, and I, I can I can get that. Although L- Stacy does uh, tell Linda, uh, of course, which I I love Linda's reaction to this because she's just like you know because um, she tells Stacy tells Linda that like hey this guy like I had sex with him like you know and he got me pregnant I abandoned her and didn't pay his half. Uh, Linda becomes furious. I love her because uh, she's talking. Um, Linda is talking to to Stacy on the phone. And she's just like, you know, Demone's, Mike Damone is just like, he's not going to get away with this. Like, he's not a boy, uh, Stacy. He's a little prick. Just keeps calling him a prick. It's so funny. I like it. And then also, because Linda is that bitch, she is going to go and she spray paints the word prick on his car door. And he's just like, what the fuck? The fuck is this? Um, and also has little prick uh, painted on his locker uh, for revenge. Uh, that's a whole thing thing too but yeah so i mean (laughs) to bone he's just going through it man you know and he's not making the best of decisions you know but i think also it's just like he's also just trying to live i guess like he's just trying to like live his life and do what he needs to do i guess we then have our scene also where uh mark uh, he comes back into the story. He confronts Damone about his involvement with Stacy. So he goes up to him like in the locker room where I will tell you this, Mike Damone has, Ooh, he's got a, a good body again. If he's to be of age, but still like that's a, that's a nice body he got anyway. So like, you know, they almost get into a fight though. Uh, but the gym teacher ends up breaking it up and that kind of ends a little bit of the story uh, with Damone. But again, it's just kind of showing all this stuff. And then also, I mean, the thing is, is like, you know, uh, Amy Hackerling was talking about this when on the cam- commentary track with Cameron Crow, you know, talking about like how the studio, you know, when they were seeing some of these dailies or they were seeing some of this stuff, like they just were like, what the hell is this? Like, we don't want a, uh, she was talking about the sad part of the movie, which is just kind of the sad part, if you will, of what I just talked about. Like, why are these, why do you have like this person crying? This per- girl's getting an abortion. Like, what the hell? Like, you know, what kind of movie are you making? But again, I think it really comes back to the fact that this was very honest. Like, these are things that teenagers go through. You know, teenagers have sex. Some teenagers get pregnant. You know, like, these are things that, and honestly, I mean, like, if I had to guess, like, I would think that this was one of the first times I'd ever really seen this kind of plot point in a movie really i think maybe i had kind of very seldomly had seen it on like degrassi but even that 
if any of my Degrassi people out there, you know, you, you know that that was actually uh, that episode where Manny gets pregnant and gets an abortion. You know, she, that actually got um, censored in the U.S. where they weren't showing it. Because, again, for whatever reason, yeah, we have a... I'm not going to even get started. But anyway, so, like, you know, but the fact that in 1982 a movie can... We'll talk about this and and it's something that is treated as, like, this is what happens sometimes. And it's... I, for one, am somebody who is pro-choice and I always will be. And, you know, I don't... I think of an abortion as a medical procedure uh, that is something that is important to do if if you feel like you choose to do that. And so for me, at least, like seeing this, like and when I saw this movie for the first time when I was like a teenager, I mean, I'm sure it was like one of the first times I ever saw that, you know, and I think that's like really powerful in, in a way. So. But yeah, so uh, we'll we'll wrap up a little bit about Mike Damone, and we'll move on to uh, the final character we have, which is kind of the standout person of this movie, who is Jeff Spicoli. So Spicoli is like this carefree stoner dude and surfer um, who runs afoul of um, history teacher Mr. Hand, played by Ray Walston, and of course Jeff Spicoli is played by Young Shang Pen. So like you know, throughout this movie, he really is kind of our comic relief in a way. Um, so the things he's getting up to a little bit is like he he ends up befriending uh the brother the younger brother of charles jefferson Forrest whitaker's character um he is driving charles's car um and he ends up like he ends up like uh wrecking it because he doesn't know how to fucking drive hardly um he's driving recklessly a little bit and he ends up like uh destroying his car pretty much he crashes into it i mean they're not dead thank god but like still you know yeah anyway though he he uh i love spicoli because like he's he's just like i can fix it if my dad's a tv repairman like i he i can get his tools i can fix this it's fine um so like for example like he um covers up the damage by making it look like uh the car itself was like destroyed by this rival uh football team and then that comes into like the one scene i think that amy heckerling said like you know she she kind of messed up on because both her and cameron crow are not familiar with football like that and so like <laughs> They have this whole scene where it's a football game, and I think when they tried directing it, like the people who were like looking at this movie, they were like, "What in the hell are you doing with this?" And like, do you know anything about sports? Like, do you know anything about football? She was like, "Yeah, no, I don't. (laughs) I have no idea how to do this." So they actually went in um, and was able to actually get a little bit more of a accurate depiction of how you put on, you know, football on a movie. Anyway, but I just thought it was really funny. But yeah, so like, uh, but this plays into like when. Jefferson thinks that uh, somebody, the the team like vandalizes car or whatever. This just like attack. He just attacks these players and it makes them win, which is kind of nice. Um, and that's that's nice and fun. But yes, yeah, Spicoli's just kind of our um, he's kind of our comic relief. So he has that scene. Um, he like goes to the science class, Mr. Vargas's class, where he's not even in the class, but he goes with the class on the day to where they go to the morgue at the local hospital, where they're going and seeing, like, human organs and this human physiology and stuff like that. And then throughout, like, he's kind of a pain in the side uh, to Mr. Hand in particular. And, like, you know, but it's to show, too, that, I mean, like, he's kind of in this, like, situation of just, he's, like, yeah, he's kind of a slacker, I guess. Like, he's this, like, stoner character. He's very much that um, archetype and all but you know if anything that archetype would end up bleeding into so many different characters like obviously you know someone like Slater from Days to Confused Bill and Ted to a point even though you already know about Bill and Ted I love them and they're not stoners technically but like there's influence there a little bit obviously Travis from Clueless you know things like that but but you also see that I mean Jeff is not exactly uh the most academic and so like nearing the end of the movie uh on the evening of the graduation dance Mr. Hand actually comes to Spicoli's house and you just see that it's like him and his brother and like I think their dad or something I don't even think their mom is in the situation I don't really know you don't mean any of the parents which I'll talk about in a minute but you know, <laughs> on the evening of this dance, though, like uh, 
Mr. Han comes to his house and he informs him that he must make up the eight hours of class time that he has wasted over the school year. Uh, they have a history session that, uh, you know, lasts until Mr. Hand is satisfied that actually Spicoli understands the lesson um, and that it shows that they respect themselves. And I really like that they they respect each other, really. And I really like this scene because... Again, throughout this whole movie, you know, Spicoli is our comic relief. He is this just like archetype stoner character who just hardly even knows what's going on half the time. But in a way, like in his own way, like when Mr. Hand is there talking to him and like going over the history lesson and all that. And Jeff is able to kind of talk back with him about like what he had gone over. And like, in a way he understands what it is and, and he has his own way of understanding it. Um, and again, there's that mutual respect. I think that is there. Uh, Mr. Hand, I think does, he's shown as a hard ass of course. And, and, you know, he kind of takes a, uh, uses Spicoli as kind of this, like, uh, I don't know, a scapegoat kind of, or, or whatever, just being like, you know, hey, what about this guy? But it's to show that, like, hey, I, I want you to know that, like, I want to make sure that you're actually understanding all of this. And, like, I want you to be able to pass. You know what I mean? And again, it's showing that they have this respect for each other. Um, and I, I really like it. And even like with, uh, Spicoli asking like, you know, Hey, do you have a kid like me every year, Mr. Hand that you try to make an example out of? And he's just like, yeah, I don't know about that. But, um, and then of course, like, you know, Spicoli is like, you know, Oh, Hey, I'm, I'm not coming anywhere near your end of the, uh, school once I pass your class, you know? And he's like, if you pass my class, Mr. Spicoli. And he's like, Oh no, are you going to flunk me? And he's like, don't worry. I think you'll squeak by. He's like, okay, rad. Like, great. But I, I do like that little scene there as well. Like I, I enjoy, um, I do enjoy that, like, Mr. Hand and Jeff Spicoli, they they get this um, nice resolution near the end where you do see that, like, you know, Mr. Hand does care about his students and he he does actually want him to, to be, you know, good and be able to move on to the next grade if he can. And I, I like that. And it's it's nice. We then move into our wrapping up on the movie, but we're, we um, go into like uh, the dance at the end of the year. So we find out that Linda and Doug, uh, Linda breaks up with Doug pretty much uh via letter, I believe. Mark and Damone, they uh, reconcile uh, over everything that's gone on. Spicoli comes to the dance and he gets up on the... um the stage with the band who apparently was uh the leader of the band or like the lead singer was actually uh amy heckerling's ex-husband oh and also a little fun fact uh so the dr miller who's the morgue guy at the hospital that they go to because there's a whole that scene um that's actually martin breast who is an ex-boyfriend of amy heckerling's and also the uh he did like uh the movie scent of a woman um he did a couple different movies but he's also the uh person who directed the absolute flop that is ben affleck and jennifer uh, Lopez's Gili. So he actually directed that movie, funny enough. But um, yes. But you have that whole scene, and you have this nice little uh, kind of wrap up uh, at the dance and everything, um, where again, they're all there and they all, their loose ends are ending to be tied up pretty much. And so we have our epilogue. So, like, Mark and Stacy, they start dating again. Um, you know, Mark Ratner, he makes peace with his friend, Damone. Uh, Brad, he takes a job at a convenience store called the uh, Mini Mart. And he actually, so there's a scene near the end where it's uh, Brad uh, and Spicoli comes in. And he asks him, like, Spicoli, why don't you get a job? Like, you need money. He's just like, all I need are some cool waves, a cool buzz, you know, and I'm good. Uh, so, like, you know, he... Uh, Brad ends up like foiling this robber while Spicoli's in the bathroom. He was promoted to the manager of the mini mart and we get our little like uh, endings. So like we have that happen with Brad. Like we get that. Then we see that Damone was busted uh, scalping Ozzy Osbourne tickets. He was forced to take a job at a convenience store, the 7-Eleven. Mr. Vargas has gone back to caffeinated coffee. Uh, Linda uh, attends the college in Riverside and she moves in with her abnormal psych professor. But, you know, then Mark and Stacy, they are going steady, but they still haven't gone all the way yet, which, again, kind of ties back to, like, their innocence that they have. And then Mr. Hand uh, believes his main, uh, he maintains his belief that really everybody is on dope, 
which you know what, Mr. Hand, I concur. Um, and then also, uh, Spicoli, uh, he had saved Brooke Shields from drowning and he blew his reward money on, um, getting Van Halen to play at his birthday. And yeah. And then we have all of those little, which are all, I think, written by Cameron Crowe, like how they have that little epilogue. And then as the credits roll on the film, the Mini Mart, the All American Burger, and the Ridgemont, um, mall they all close for the night so you see all of them these people closing up for the night and that's actually referenced uh, from another movie that uh, they had seen i think amy heckerling had seen um and they thought that would be a really cool way of kind of ending the movie uh but yeah that is the end of fast times at ridgemont high so in regards to wrapping up about fast times at ridgemont high i mean as I stated earlier in the pod, I just really, I really enjoy this movie personally. I think that, as I stated earlier, it is a very, I feel like it's a realistic portrayal of what it's kind of like in high school. Um, it definitely comes from the fact that, um, if I'm not mistaken, Cameron Crowe himself, like, literally went and, like, you know, sat in on high schools in California, you know, specific, uh, to see what it was like for these eighties teenagers. And so I think that that, um, does come out in some way. And if anything, it's, you know, I don't know. It just feels very honest. It doesn't feel like, you know, it doesn't feel like a day is confused or like a, um, or like a clueless or like these other movies. Um, again, they're, they're great in their own right in a way, but like, it, it's just a really, I don't know, it's just fun to watch. You know, there's so many iconic parts, you know, it's like the whole, you know, the whole pool scene and, you know, Spicoli as a person. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, there are Mr. Hand and um, all this kind of stuff. I just think it's very interesting and I really enjoy it. So um, I actually own this movie on a double feature with uh, Daisy Confused. It came together. Um, so... If you ever find yourself buying that, that's fun one if you enjoy those movies. Um, but also, it, it's shown up on um, Tubi before as well. That's really fun. And also, um, it shows up on Prime here and there as well. Um, so you can watch it there. Um, so I definitely recommend it. Like I, I think if you haven't already seen the movie, definitely go out and watch it. But if you have seen it already, I mean, obviously, you should go and watch it again. Because it's just... Uh, I mean, I wasn't alive for the 80s or anything but uh there are parts of me that i'm just like wow this just gives such a a specific view of a part of the country in the 80s um and i do think it tends to stay kind of honest to that which is really cool but yeah no uh if you haven't already done so go watch this movie go watch it again if it's been a minute um because you won't you won't be disappointed by any means obviously it's so so good and um it's definitely worth a watch in your time. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. If you'd like to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd just like to say hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the show on Instagram at cultcinemacircle and on Twitter at cultcinemacircle. I tend to announce the movies that I'm going to be covering and just interact with people on there if they want. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On that platform, I tend to log the movies that i watch i write little stupid reviews about them and just general foolishness over there be sure to rate comment and subscribe to the cult cinema circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice whether that be apple podcasts google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts i'm pretty much on all of them be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1999's 10 Things I Hate About You. Kat Stratford is beautiful, smart, and quite abrasive to most of her fellow classmates, meaning that she doesn't attract many boys. Unfortunately for her younger sister, Bianca, house rules say that she can't date until Kat has a boyfriend, so strings are pulled to set the dour damsel up for a romance. Soon, Kat crosses paths with handsome new arrival Patrick Verona. Will Cat let her guard down enough to fall for the effortlessly charming Patrick? As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Take care. Bye.